0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Short two-part series that we started last uh, two weeks ago on Sunday evening on the whole theme of discipleship, which is uh, something that's close to my heart and sons as well. Um, I think this is one of those topics that, if we're honest, is really foundational to our 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 calling and our ministry as a church. I mean, we are. Called by God's grace to be disciple-makers. We are called by God to um, make and mature disciples of Christ who run to win. That's our church's mission statement. And so I think it would be foolish for us to, to consider that in some detail. Now, last time we talked about the importance of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, of maturing, and why that's so foundational. Because we said you cannot... Um, lead others to where you yourself are not going and so we we looked in quite a bit of detail probably more detail than we wanted to in terms of thinking through the um, this whole idea of of what is growth and grace the necessity of that the means of that and some of those some of those things Uh, it's um, beyond us to, to kind of review all that tonight I encourage you to take a listen to that recording if you can if you can get a hold of it but what I want us to do tonight is to uh Go to the the other side of that is how do we lead others into those things now that assuming that concurrent with our growth in godliness now how do we as Christians lead others into that I believe uh, it begins with a with a holy dissatisfaction in our hearts um, things have to be different than they are today for us that's just we are not what we ought to be and. Um, uh, but we are not what we once were. And, and so things must be different in my life and in your life than they are today. They, they must be different in the world around us as a consequence of living for Christ. And that, that change, that, that growth, that taking us from where we are to where we need to be, uh, that is accessible as we strive to become uh, more influential people, as we learn to become more effective disciple-makers. Uh, and I don't want this whole concept of discipleship or, or being a disciple maker. I don't want that to communicate the wrong thing. In the Bible, discipleship is not um, reserved only for the super godly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a mis uh, misunderstanding of the term. It, it is it is not the person who leads a ministry or holds an office in the church. That's um, I mean, hopefully they are disciple makers, but that's that's not all a disciple maker is. In the Bible, discipleship is. Is leading another human being into the true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, discipleship is, is caring enough to be a difference maker in another believer's life, such that you would lead them to greater, greater faithfulness. And so there has to be within us this, this holy dissatisfaction with the status quo. We are not content to be where we are. We want to grow ourselves and we want to see others growing in godliness also. The, the responsibility of discipleship is obvious to us. I mean, we know that in, uh, in Matthew 28, in verses 18 to 20, um, the Great Commission is given to us by the Lord. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, um, and that... He says, to do that, if we are to go about that, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this call to discipleship is for all of us. It's given to the disciples, the living disciples at the, at the Christ resurrection, but it, it, by extension, is for all of us. Um, and so discipleship is for all of us. It, it extends to the new Christian, the, the baby Christian who only knows how to say, you know, all I, all I can say is, let me tell you what the Lord has done in my life. And it, of course, is uh, for the person who's walked with Christ for decades. So I want us to consider, and this is something that we talked about a, a little bit with the men a few, um, I guess it was several weeks ago, this idea of influence, this concept of influence. And we just, we just hit it with a glancing blow. But I want to go back to this because it's sort of foundational to this whole theme of discipleship. The idea of influence at the end of the day is a simple lordship concept. It, it is It goes hand in glove with the idea of lordship. That is to say, if God is, uh, you know, if he has taken up residence within you as a believer, as a child of God, then he is going, excuse me, to change who you are and act to reflect his glory in the world. Uh, that's what it means to be alive in Christ. And, and so the, this... Um, so influence is, is, a, is connected to just being a child of God. Uh, look at Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16. Our Lord says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. These images that our Lord uses here of salt, salt being a preservative, it is that which adds flavor, so it uh, kind of reduces the likelihood of corruption, so it has has a staying and preservative effect. Light, this image of light, dispels darkness, light is a means by which God gives safety to us Uh, and then this whole image of a city on a hill which we know so well is uh, we are unmistakable as believers, unmistakable beacon of truth living uh, boldly before a watching world. Christians should the the point is that Christians should be seen, Christians have an opportunity to be heard Um, and so that That is what we're talking about when we're talking about influence. The word influence itself is not in the Bible, but again, that's not how we determine what's biblical truth and what's not biblical truth. Um, The concept is all over, all over the scriptures. Uh, The word is used, uh, the the, the concept is used all over the place, but the word the Bible tends to use is this word persuasion or convincing. I want to give you just a few few uh, ex, you know, kind of references as you think about this just so you understand that we're not just making this up the, the New Testament concept of persuasion falls under a, a, a group of words that speak of persuasion, to prevail upon, to win over to convince. Um, there's a whole word family of that in the original language I want to just show you a couple of examples um, that I think are in, uh, illustrative of this concept of, of um, persuasion and influence, Acts chapter 12. Look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. In in um, in this account, Peter has just um, uh, you know been released from prison, and now they're kind of dealing with all of the fallout of that. And it said, When Herod had searched for him and had not found Peter, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. And they went down from... Uh, then he, Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So this is along the coastal regions. Now he, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. The, this region, this coastal region, was very much dependent upon the region of Galilee, and Herod didn't really care for them. <laughs> I think mean, he kind of viewed them more as maybe just uh, a drain on his resources, um, and uh, he, he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord these people in, in the coastland came to Herod, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So this, this uh, the, the, uh, what, they, what you see here are these people in Tyre and Sidon basically seeking to persuade to win over, to uh, having, some translations say, having made Blastus his friend, um, they were asking him for peace. So, this it has the idea of personal persuasion. They were trying to, um, this individual who had kind of pull with Herod, they were trying to convince him to, uh, to act and to uh, respond in a certain way. So, persuasion, personal persuasion is one of the ways that this term, this this uh, word family is translated. But it also can speak of persuasion in respect to, to preaching or, and, and preaching the gospel. And that's a more direct kind of uh, disciple-making task. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 4, it says when Paul came to Corinth, he was reasoning in the synagogue every day, uh, every Sabbath, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So again, this, this concept of influence, persuasion, Um, he is prevailing upon them with the gospel Acts chapter 19 and verse 8 he says and he, Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God and uh, and again in verse 26 same chapter he says you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all um, so we see this word persuasion used here to speak of the Paul's reasoning and persuading believers, unbelievers to put their trust in Christ but you see this elsewhere too in Acts chapter 13 verse 43 it says now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them were urging them to continue urging persuading same idea to continue in the grace of God. When he meets with King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 28, you see again, Paul uh, is so uh, convincing, so um, effective, almost effective, that uh, Agrippa responds in verse 28. He says, "In a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian?" So, again, you see this uh, this concept of persuasion, and you see it in Acts 28, verse 23, and other places. And so the point is, I guess, as we kind of approach this, is do you and I have any capacity, by the grace of God, to persuade people to come into the kingdom of God? Do you have any capacity to urge fellow believers on in the things of the Lord? That's the question. This is essential because God has given each one of us the responsibility of discipleship, and discipleship is about being a person that wields spiritual influence in the lives of others. And the, so the question that that the book of Acts um, points us to, to and asks of us is, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are we being influential in the ways that we need to be, that we can be? And influence is essential. <laughs> Everything's working against me tonight. <laughs> influence is eminent, and uh, meaning that it is superior. Influence is... Eminent. there is great power in influencing others to act as opposed to commanding them to obey we so have to understand there's a difference there if people do what we want if people do what we want they will act under uh, their short-sighted and wrong they'll do so in a short-sighted and wrong-minded way if, if they just command people to do things that's not the point we want people to be serving God and not simply doing what we desire as a, as a disciple maker to get people to the point where they are acting, doing, serving because they want to oftentimes is a battle that is hard fought over the long term but one that once it has been that the victory's been secured it will never have to be won again because the spirit of God will be at work in them so to fight the battle of the mind that influences persuades another to make obedience their personal responsibility that is is a hard fought task it is a slow task, and yet it yields permanent results. Because what happens is when someone is influenced, when, when, when they are persuaded, when they are convinced, then the char- their character is captive to God and his purposes going forward. They are independently, I said to the men, they are independently dependent on Jesus Christ on their own. They are dependent on Him. They follow Him and obey His voice and don't need anyone to stand over them to ensure that they glorify and honor Him. So so that's the goal. That's the goal, to be a person of influence. And we need to be resolved to this. And we see the resolve to influence in the Psalms. Um, And there's a lot of references, but I just want to look at a few. Uh, Psalm 96, in verse 3, the psalmist there says, in 90, uh, Psalm ninety, oops, and verse three, tell of his glory, of God's glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. I mean, this is a, this is a, as the psalmist writes, he is, he is basically putting words to this desire to, to influence others for Christ, to tell others about what God has done, his wonderful deeds, to make that known. Psalm one forty five and verse. Four. he says one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty works verse 6 men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness verse 7 they, will, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness Psalm 146 in verse 2 I will praise the Lord while I live I will sing praises to my God while I have my being uh, the, the, the heart of the psalmist is one of bearing witness telling others prevailing upon others even to hear what God has done and is doing for them Psalm uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13 Paul says having the same spirit of faith according to what is written I believe therefore I spoke we also believe therefore we also speak this is a, he is resolved, because of his convictions, spiritual convictions, to be a man of influence. So, the question is, do you want to be that person? Have you answered that question in the affirmative? Do you decidedly desire to become a sharper tool in the Lord's hands? An authentic answer of yes will change the way you and I live our lives for Christ. And we said last time that discipleship is the, is the goal of spiritual influence. Discipleship is the goal of spiritual influence. Discipleship is the New Testament model for spiritual growth. If you want to grow or impact others, then that growth will occur in what the New Testament generally calls discipleship. And of course the term disciple or mathetes occurs 200 times in the New Testament Um, and it's all of those are concentrated um, really in uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts after that you don't see the term thrown around that much but um, the uh, spiritual influence then is the means by which discipleship takes place So, spiritual influence is the means and discipleship is is the goal. And we said that the, the, the working definition of discipleship is, um, and I'll give it to you again because it's a little long, is to purposely exemplify in oneself and reproduce in another through the vehicle of a Christian friendship measurable spiritual progress. Every part of that we said is important. We are to purposely exemplify in oneself, we are to be godly and pressing toward the mark and then we are to reproduce that that growth and godliness in another and we do that through the vehicle of a Christian friendship such that we bring about measurable spiritual progress so discipleship is the goal spiritual influence which is really through the means of Christian friendship a genuine friendship is the, uh, is the means of the vehicle through that for that to take place so I want to talk a little bit about discipleship through the means of spiritual influence so That's what we kind of want to look at As we kind of wrap up tonight i give you a few things to, Kind of headings to help us think about Discipleship Now I'm kind of keeping this more on the higher level Because exactly how this is going to work out Is going to vary depending on The interaction, the nature of, the, of your Relationship with different people in different places And at different times but, but these are kind of the general principles I think that are helpful As we think about discipleship Remember, influence is the means Spiritual influence for Christ's sake Not for our sake or for anyone else's But for Christ's sake And discipleship is the goal The first kind of discipleship principle is this Discipleship involves A pervasive orientation toward others Discipleship involves A pervasive orientation toward others In other words, discipleship in discipleship, sensitivity to people is is vital. It's essential, and um, and we see these examples uh, in Paul's. I think Paul becomes a great model for this. Um, he, we're going to look to so many of his letters to, to kind of walk us through this this con- these concepts tonight. But but uh, if you turn to First Thessalonians chapter two and verses seven to twelve you will see a little bit of the imagery that Paul, as he thinks about discipleship, uh, having a pervasive orientation toward others. In 1 Thessalonians 2, in verse 7, he says, But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond, uh, this is verse 8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are our witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." I mean, the images here are rich. There's a ten, he, he says, we were like, uh, in verse 7, like a tender nursing mother, right? Very much not concerned about themselves, but what very much concerned for others. And uh, it involves uh, a pervasive orientation. You know, and those of you who have um, born children and raised children, or even just have nieces and nephews that you've cared for, you know when they're little, when they're young, it, there's a You know what they need And, you, and you're always sort of meet, Trying to meet those needs That's what we do And that's what Paul thought about His relationship with this church With these believers But he wasn't just like a nursing mother He was also like a devoted And teaching father Exhorting, um, you know, encouraging, imploring The way a father would For his own children And what was he doing? He was trying to implore them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so to to, to kind of understand what Paul's getting at here is we have to have a pervasive orientation toward others. I'm going to speak to you in, in terms of what you need. In terms of what I'm focused on, what those around me need, not what I need. Uh, my God's agenda is what matters, not my agenda. And so, um, and so, discipleship with an orientation toward others is going to be particularized, not packaged. People always want to program. Give me the, give me the five steps to do this. Or, you know, and there's there is a comprehensiveness to our discipleship, but really, discipleship is particularized. It depends depends on where the person's at. It depends on what their strengths are. depends on what the weaknesses are. depends on what their experience is. So how we approach people is going to be particularized, not packaged. We have to be oriented toward others and meet them with where the need is. Um, if we go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this is a text that we, uh, those of you who have been around the church any length of time, have heard me talk about and preach on and so forth but in chapter 9 and verse 19 Paul says um, for though I am free of all men I have the liberty to do whatever I really want he says I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more Mm -hmm. to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law not meaning lawless but just Gentiles as without law though not being without the law of God but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are without law to the weak I became weak that I may win the weak I have become he says all things to all men so that I may be all I may by all means save some I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it I mean Paul was focused on others he did not care about himself not that he neglected himself entirely but the point was his, his, his orientation was a pervasively toward others. Paul says he wants to win the more. And so, as we think about this concept of discipleship, we need to ask ourselves, is that a part of my spiritual vocabulary? Am I serious about wanting to win the more? Am I serious about being oriented toward others? There's a story... Uh, this tall—I don't know if it's true or not. It's hard to really know anymore with so much stuff flying around. But um, with George Washington, George Washington was—he was a big guy, um, six-two, something like that, six-three. I forget how tall exactly he was. When most guys his age were at that time were, you know, were five, 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 four. They were little, little guys back then. But despite being such a massive target, uh, he showed virtually no fear on the battlefield. One of unique opportunity is recorded in 1755 when uh, he was fighting for the British and um, they were engaged in the French and Indian War against against the adversaries. The British were were being pushed back. They were actually losing this battle uh, of Monongahela. I think that's how it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. This battle, uh, which took place toward the beginning of the French and Indian War, saw one general uh, his forces meet a, a massive defeat against the much smaller Native American and French colonial troops, and that general Braddock died in battle, and his forces fell in disarray. So the lines broke; it just kind of became chaos. Washington, it's till it said, took command in organizing a retreat, so as to save lives and to to kind of regroup, and he did that by riding between all the collapsing front, all the cl- collapsing lines, and during the chaos. He lost two horses and had four bullet holes shot through his coat. It is worth noting that the danger of losing even one horse in a battle um, is, you know, especially in a, in a battle like that, in a retreat, that would cause most officers to um, to panic. That would cause most officers to um, to give up and to flee. But Washington got a second horse and then after that he got another horse and he just kept getting shot out from underneath him and the bullet holes didn't seem to spook him either, apparently in fact a year earlier he would written a letter to his brother explaining his feelings about being on the battlefield and he said in that letter I heard the bullets whistle and believe me there is something charming in the sound <laughs> it's nuts <laughs> but why would he do that? why did he do that? Because he didn't care about his own life. Mm -hmm. He didn't care. It didn't matter to him. He was so concerned about his men. He was so concerned about the cause that he was fighting for that he would not give up. He would not panic. He would not retreat. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we so into ourselves and our comfort that we are retreating spiritually? Because we do that sometimes, we we become self-focused and self-pity, and no one's doing this for me or no one's helping me. But really, that's that's the wrong questions to be asking. We need to be like Washington, riding toward the sound of bullets in ministry, to be to be effective in this task of discipleship. So, so we need to be have a pervasive orientation and concern for others. A second kind of heading that you can. Kind of walk us through this concept. Is discipleship not only has a pervasive orientation toward others; it invests a profound um, intimacy in others. It invests a profound intimacy in others. If we go back to 1 Thessalonians two, in verse seventeen, uh, at the end of that ch- uh, chapter, there, Paul kind—he of was taken away from them, kind of before he wanted to. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. And then he says this, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. There is... Uh, in these words, they are just soaked with um, a, a relational uh, concern. Paul has a is a deep and an abiding relationship with these believers in this church. And he is in, and that is a function of his effort. you know he he has done this. and you see it it come out in verse seventeen. he He planted the seeds of selfless concern and intimacy, verse seventeen. We have been taken away from you for a short while in person not in spirit we're all the more eager and desire to see your face he wanted to be with them he wanted to he wanted to look them in the eye he wanted to enjoy their fellowship and their company he planted the seeds of courageous perseverance verse 18 we wanted to come to you more than once and yet Satan hindered us the only thing that could keep Paul from coming to them was Satan's buffering buffering him but he persevered. He says, I long to be with you. I, I, I love you. I care for you. I want to I invest in your life. I want to finish the work that I began. This selfless intimacy, courageous perseverance, that's in discipleship. That's what we individually put into the process with other people. Um, again, we see this come out in his as he's defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians 6 against. Um, all kinds of slanderous accusations, most of which were either not true entirely or they were distorted and misunderstood. In chapter 6 and verse 4, he says, but he, defending himself, he says, "...but in everything, commending ourselves to you as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleepless nights, in hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and in kindness, in, holy, in the Holy Spirit in genuine love." in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right and left hand, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. He says this this is how we conducted ourselves before you, We laid it all down. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us. He says, the problem is with you. You are restrained in your own affections. I mean, Paul put everything into that church. He poured his life into that church. And he passed through that church for many, many months. And he came back and visited them. Like, he loved them. Verse Thirteen, he says. Now you, reciprocating kind, seven, chapter seven, verse two. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. It was all for their sakes. He loved them. He invested in them. He cared for them. Mm-hmm. Colossians six, verses one uh, two. Colossians two, verses one and two. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. For those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Hearts knit together, that was his desire. This is the heart of a disciple maker. We want others to know the fullness and joy that comes with Christ, in Christ. Philippians 2 In verse 20, as Paul speaks about his discipleship and relationship with Timothy, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's why he says I'm sending him. For they, all these other people, all seek after their own interests, not of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven word, that he served me in the fervorance of the gospel like a child serving his father. There There was a genuine interest a mutual concern, Paul says. Timothy is a kindred spirit. We are of one soul. This is uh you don't get to this place by accident; it's intentional. He says uh, he was concerned for the things of Christ because that's what we love. And this so this requires time spent together. He, Paul had this relationship with Timothy because he spent time with him. Because they talked about the things of the Lord, they ministered to the people of God. They were invested in them with a profound intimacy and to go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 when we do this when we make that sacrifice uh, over the long haul there is fruit that comes out of that look at verse 19 he says for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation is it not even you in the presence of our Lord His coming the fruit that it yields when we invest profoundly Intimately in others is hope, in other words, that things are going to happen. Joy for past successes and for the nature of the relationship. And he says they are his crown of exaltation. There's excitement for future glory. So a discipleship brings about eternal rewards, and those, those rewards redound to the glory of God. Such was Paul's love for those that he ministered to that in Acts chapter 20 when he left Ephesus and the Ephesian elders were saying goodbye to him and, um, and they, they were concerned that they probably would never see him again. Mm-hmm. You remember the scene at the end of Acts chapter 20? He says, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. And this is like a final goodbye. You don't get to that place by accident. You do that by profoundly investing in intimacy, relationally with others. So discipleship has a pervasive orientation toward others. Discipleship has, invests a profound intimacy in others. Thirdly, discipleship includes a personal application for others. Discipleship includes a personal application for others. First Thessalonians 3 and verse 10. Paul says this, Night and day we kept praying most earnestly that we would see your face. And here's what he prayed, That we may complete what is lacking in your faith. The, this, the Paul says there's... there's there is, um, he was taken away before he could really get to some of the more important uh, doctrines, especially as we'll see if you see later on in the letter, um, doctrines of the re- Christ's resurrection. Some of that wasn't clear to them, and Christ's coming, and so he's ri- that's why he's writing them, among other reasons. And he says, I want to come to you because I want to fill up what is lacking. There's more for you to know. There's 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 things that you don't fully grasp there's things in your life perhaps that need to be filled in. He says, I want to do that for you. I want to be there to to do that. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is filling up what is lacking in another person's faith. And we all have things lacking in our our walk. We're not what we ought to be. So So it's a desire to see that realized in others. A fourth kind of principle, and this has some kind of subpoints. that's all well and good, but why don't people do it? Why don't people, why don't they have a pervasive orientation toward others? Why don't they invest in others in a, in a, in a personal way? Why do they not want to bring a personal word of application? I just want to address some of the challenges. So discipleship, the last kind of principle is discipleship embraces the challenge of change. Discipleship embraces the challenge of change in other people. Change is difficult, um, spiritually speaking. Why is it so hard? And um, what, what, what hinders us? Well, uh, first, change is a challenge because laziness and comfort hold such a lure over our hearts and lives. Laziness and our own kind of personal comfort hold a lot of allure over our hearts. Change, spiritually speaking, to be a person of influence involves the movement of a virtually immovable object, mm-hmm. right? I can't make somebody be godly. That's something that God has to do within them. It's, it's a hard task. It's a, it's a challenge Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So to be a disciple-maker, to be consistent and faithful in this, is not um, going to lead to a life of of ease. It's not going to lead to a life of comfort. It's a life lived for the benefit of other people. Disciple-makers work tirelessly in the most uh, sometimes adverse circumstances. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about, compares himself to the good shepherd. In John 10, in verses 11 to 13, we see a little bit about the challenge, the, the, the forfeiting of comfort that comes with discipleship. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. It's easy for people in the church to have a hireling mentality when it comes to commitment to others. I see it all the time, you know, and uh, and I don't fault people for having that mindset because uh, in a world where you can pretty much do and be or go and have anything you want, at least in our culture, uh, that translates over into the church. I want a church that meets all my needs, I want a church that scratches every itch, has every program that I like, you know, as a better-looking pastor, whatever it is you want. <laughs> so, so people look at the church like they look at, they choose a church like they choose a restaurant. I like the food there. I like the ambiance. I like the music. But that's, um, while we do need to use wisdom and discernment as we choose a church, and not to say that all decisions like that, everyone's decision for not going one place or another is always selfish, but but when we have a hireling mentality, when, when things become difficult, when things are a challenge, people just cut loose. They just disappear. Mm-hmm. They're just gone. Um, we don't want to have a hireling mentality when it comes to ministry. It, it, sometimes if um, if we don't see anyone sort of following us that we don't feel like we're having spiritual influence it's not always the case but it could be that you're just not loving other people John chapter 10 um, verse 3 to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out because of the way the shepherd cared for the sheep they followed him uh, verse 13 he, he flees disappears because he's a higher hand is not concerned about the sheep so so you know part of the problem could be if we don't find ourselves being able to have influence over other people in, a, in, a, in the godliest of ways it's maybe because we're just not loving other people maybe we're just all up about ourselves so, so this calls us to consider do you love others do you like to care for other people to personally sacrificially guide others toward Christ's likeness is that a desire of your heart or do you just like being up front or do you just love having responsibility You know, some people do ministry because they like administration or they like organizing events or they like doing these things uh, they like teaching because everyone listens to them but few people if any gravitate toward the dirty ignoble profoundly laborious profession of caring for souls there's just not a real interest for that and um, and so we are. The challenge is difficult because um, because of our own laziness, or our own comfort, or our own pride, or whatever, which is not interesting. God will give us all that we need. Change is a challenge. Secondly, kind of as a subpoint, since the disciple is at once attempting to stave off danger and promote forward progress. Challenge is a change. A change is a challenge. Challenges a change too. Ch- change is a challenge since the disciple is at once attempting to stave off danger and promote forward progress. There are evil forces that seek to kill and destroy us. We see that in John chapter 10. 1 Peter 5:8 says our, our adversary runs around like a like a roaring lion, prowls around, seeking whom he may devour. So all of us, and every human being, it, even in our flesh, is leaning at times, in the wrong direction. We are inclined to the wrong things. Change would be easier if we had even neutral inclinations, but oftentimes our flesh takes us the opposite direction. So our task as a a disciple maker, as one who bears influence, is is especially hard. Because we're we're not only trying to defend against the enemy, but we're trying to, like Washington, trying to lead lead the troops forward. God does promise a safety. Matthew 6, verse 33 tells us that if we seek His kingdom and His righteousness, all the things that we need will be added unto us. But uh, we also need spiritual victory. We need need God's decisive deliverance. 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, The Lord stood with me, speaking about his, um, His labors, and strengthen me, his defense, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of a lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and I will, and will bring me safely home to his heavenly kingdom. So so the challenge is, is um, change is a challenge because it, it requires us to, to lead others, and we need decisive deliverance and spiritual victory from the Lord. Thirdly, Change is a challenge because it's difficult to seek and save lost sheep. It is a challenge to seek and save lost sheep. Matthew 19, verse 10 The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And um, the sheep are lost and they don't even know it. (laughs) Unbelievers, they don't even know that they don't have Christ. They're happy to do that. Sometimes the sheep don't want to be found. Jude uh, Jude, uh, verses 22 and 23 Jude I think kind of alludes to this he says have mercy on some who are doubting save others snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear aiding even the garment polluted by the flesh some are struggling you have to go after them uh, some are wandering around the fire ready to burn up and others are, are so you know so far gone that you need to be careful yourself so it's, it's a challenge because seeking and saving lost sheep is, is very difficult changes the challenge fourthly because the flocks are often too large and the church needs many more shepherds and disciple makers changes the challenge because the flocks are too large the church needs many more shepherds we want to build a ministry here at the church where others help feed, assist, and lead one another. Mm -hmm. We can't do that ourselves. We cannot do that ourselves. And a lot of churches struggle with this whole implementation of discipleship because they just don't have enough people that are committed to the work. Mm -hmm. They just aren't doing it. And they're looking to the handful of elders, deacons, ministry team leaders, small group leaders, to do all the work. But that's that's the wrong mindset. Matthew 9, Matthew 9 and verses 34, uh, 35 to 39, Jesus reminds us that um, there is much work to be done and very few workers. Verse 35, 9, 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the people just these masses of people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are few. Therefore plead, beseech, the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's a tale as old as time. I mean, there's just not enough workers. So few people want to care for souls because it's hard. So we have to ask ourselves: At what point in my life, will I have the fortitude to keep uh, a little adversity and a little difficulty from stopping me? Mm-hmm. At what point, will I be willing to take up the task? You know, when are we finally going to break through the wine barrier? <laughs> right? When our kids were little, I could excuse my kids when they were little falling down and getting frustrated. And, uh, being a frustrated mess because they couldn't get their, you know, their left arm in their sleeve. That's normal for a little kid, but I can't excuse myself doing the same thing. But we do that sometimes. I mean, it's just just unacceptable. We have to take responsibility for this, right? And and we have to be about the work. Fifthly, change is a challenge because disciple makers must be a professional burden bearer burden bearer. Change is a challenge because the disciple maker is basically signing up to be a professional burden bearer, <laughs> which is hard to do. Sheep don't do a lot for themselves. Mm. Right? <laughs> they just don't. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Jesus is speaking to Peter in verse 15. He says, when he had finished, he said to Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. Third time, John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. I mean, this is is instruction for Peter, but it's also a general call for believers to care for and feed one another. We as shepherds have a a unique responsibility, but it's not exclusive to us. It's not exclusive to us as, as shepherds. It's everyone's responsibility to build up the body of Christ. And I think the reticence to bear responsibility keeps more people from involvement than any other thing. You just don't want to be responsible for other people. You know? Am I my brother's keeper? That's the mindset. Uh, and then sometimes we say, I'm not strong enough to carry their burdens on top of my own burdens. Well, that may be true to some degree, but part of the problem could be that you're not sharing your burdens with others such that they become halved. Right? A burden shared is a burden halved. We all have burdens, spiritually, practically, I mean, you know, I don't even know everything that's going on in the church, and I can tell you that most people have got something going on somewhere, whether it's with them, a family member, a work situation, you know, siblings, you know, children, whatever. This is always something. If we wait around until everyone's kind of perfected, nothing will ever get done. Galatians 6 and verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and therefore, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is a this is our call. Verse 5. For each, we do all have to bear our own load, but it's a lot easier when we share those with others. So Charles Jefferson has a famous book called The Minister as a Shepherd. He gives seven responsibilities of a shepherd. He says they're a watchman, they're a protector, they're a guide, they're a physician, they're a savior, in terms of a little, a little less they have to go after the sheep he's a provider of food and the shepherd loves the sheep and that's that's what God calls us to be to to be a disciple maker is to be um, a a professional burden bearer but again the reward is great the joy is rich the the hurts are real too (laughs) the hurts are real the disappointments are real the discouragement it can be lead to self-pity at times, but like Paul, we we can run the race with endurance. Charles Jefferson says, the work of man helping people is the work of man changing people. There is no more difficult task than to turn that which is stone to that which is flesh. There is no more challenging a prospect than to completely reverse one's natural inclination. Instincts die hard. He says, is there a more ambitious Is there a more ambitious a prospect than to embark on a journey to affect the eternal destiny of another? Is there a more intimidating task than to hazard the movement of the hearts of men? Is there a more Herculean enterprise than to even fathom that one, even a recalcitrant one, can be rescued from the dark where they are hiding so desperately? There is not a more problematic proposal than to venture the transformation of souls. And yet, he says, the difficulty is not the call so clear. It, it, excuse me. And, and despite that, the difficulty is not the call so clear and so right. Many men have attempted and accomplished more foolhardy tasks, quote unquote, just because it's there. We act not, he says, for so shallow a reason, but because we have been created and called for this very reason. The task would be too difficult, he says, We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing, end quote. And that's the heart of it. Discipleship is about taking up the impossible task that only God can empower us to do for the reward that only He can provide uh, for the goal and joy that only He can fulfill. But it's worth it. It's worth it. The, the difficulty is real, but as as a, as a disciple maker, this is what God has called us to be and to do as a church. And so, how we do that is going to look a little different in every situation. Who we who we interact with, who who those people are, but we start with those in our immediate sphere of influence. Whatever that looks like for you, it could be your home, it could be your, it could be um, just one friend in the church. It could be it could be some one coworker, one whatever. But we 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 just invest in that person. Uh, we love them. We serve them. We, we put God's agenda first, their needs first, and then, and then we go about the task. And, um, and as we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and our lives are knit together, um, God's going to draw their hearts to those things. And, and, uh, and there will be, um, it's almost like, a, I'll use the analogy of a of a big boat. Like if a, if a big boat is moving through the water, it put, displaces a huge wake and it moves everything around it. That's, that's what a godly person does. They're like a big boat and their force of their life ends up uh, moving things and people get sucked up in the wake. That's what we want to do in this task of discipleship. So, hope that's helpful for you. I'm sure you have more questions and, and things about the, the nuts and bolts of the bed that's something I maybe just to stir you up to consider this and the need for it and it's a basic principle let's go to the Lord and Prayer father we've um, we've only begun to touch on this important topic this foundational topic it's something that's so vital to the life and survival in in growth of the church not just our local church but the church universal what help us to embrace this task help us to not be stuck in our own thing so much but but really have a desire to care, love and Care for others may we be like like our forefather there washington who ran to the sun ran to the sound of bullets who who was willing to uh, just kind of disregard his life his concern but be invested in others and lord may we be able to say like paul about others who is our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation is it not even that person right as they are presented complete in christ and and that last day, Lord, uh, there's no greater task that we could be about. Or may you raise up within this church um, uh, many, many shepherds, many, many uh, disciple makers, and may you grow and strengthen our church for your name's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at Cascades Bible Church.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.